would remain standing, our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy. You may notice we're going to repeat a few verses from last week in order to give us some context for verses 3 through 7. So we'll begin at verse 1 in our reading this morning. Hear now the word of God. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today we are dealing with your deep things. We are treading in places where it is easy for us to slip or lose our grip. Would you help us that we could use our minds well in reading what you say and that we would read you faithfully and not creatively? Give us your spirit to be our helper today. Give us focus. Give us attentiveness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Two weeks ago, we started to see Paul move on to this next phase of his message to Timothy, this young man, this young minister serving in Ephesus. And he, he was addressing this question, how can he guard the deposit that's been entrusted to him? Paul's been telling him to guard the deposit. He's been telling him to be faithful in his ministry, but how can he actually do that? How can he actually live for Jesus who came to save sinners? How can he hold to the faith and avoid being shipwrecked? How can he lead this church? I don't know how you would set about accomplishing these sort of things. You know, my first instinct is uh, something very tangible, something very practical. You know, let's come up with a plan. Let's schedule some meetings. Let's institute a, a program, you know. Uh, I, I'm a very task-oriented person. When someone comes to me, uh, with a hurt, you know, my first instinct is to say, I see the problem. Let's work out a solution. Kind of a, kind of a stereotype. That's what guys do, right? We hear a problem. Let's solve the problem. And sometimes someone just wants to cry, you know. And, and, and you know, that's my instinct, though. I want to start working through the problem, start figuring out what the solution might be. And Paul, he just presented Timothy with this incredible, even daunting goal and then, and then he shows his own first impulse. What is Paul's first impulse? What is, what is, how does Paul reflexively say, let's do these things? Well, Paul's first impulse is to say, pray. That was what he did. And the very first verse from our reading two weeks ago, he said, pray. Pray for the world. He said, pray for others. Pray for kings. Really, he was saying, pray for unbelievers. He's saying, pray for your unbelieving leaders. And, and part of what that did was it sort of forced us to face this question for ourselves. What is our own attitude toward unbelievers? Do, do we love unbelievers? Do we hate unbelievers? Do we resent unbelievers? Do, do we despise them? Or do we love them? 
And, and that's, that's, that's where things move here today in verse 3, because Paul has already talked about how important it is to pray, especially for unbelieving kings and rulers. We saw that two weeks ago. But now he gets under the heart attitude that would move somebody to do just that? What is the heart attitude that would would cause me to be able to pray for someone like Nero? Why would I pray for someone like Nero, someone who thinks that he's God? Why would I do that? Or let's get more contemporary. You know, it's been a couple thousand years since Nero was much of a concern for us. Um, Why should I pray for our president? What's my motivation? What's my inner motivation? What is it that in my heart would cause me to be willing to do such a thing? Why would I do something that could be counterintuitive? Uh, Why pray for someone from the other party, for example, especially if you're really politically minded and that's sort of how you see everything? Well, here's Paul's answer. Let's say you, you know you should pray for this person. Let's say you know you should, but you just can't. Let's say that you, you know God commands you to pray for these people, but you just won't. Well, Paul gives Timothy the underlying motivation here, why you would pray for them. And I wonder if you see it. Because he's addressing something bigger than just politics. He's addressing the issue of unbelievers in general and our attitude toward the unbelieving world out there. One of the things that we need to to do for our own lives, we need to ask God to be doing for us, is making sure that our purpose and God's purpose are aligned. Uh, God has a mission. He has a purpose, something he's accomplishing, and he has plans for you and me in accomplishing what he plans to accomplish. And so if we are so insulated into our own little enclave that we don't care what happens outside of it, then we're actually working against what God is doing. Because look at today's passage. Paul is, is trying to convince Timothy that it is good to pray for unbelievers because God's purpose is to grow the church one soul at a time. He, he doesn't want it to shrink and he doesn't want the church to become entrenched. Instead, he wants it to grow and blossom and spread. Much like that mustard tree that Jesus spoke about in our New Testament reading, right? There are, there are motivations here. He wants us to see those motivations. He wants us to see those reasons as well. He wants us to want what God wants. And he wants us to love what God loves. And he's showing us today that we, that we ought to be driven to pray for all kinds of people indiscriminately. Uh, even that pagan king is not outside the reach of God's grace Even that president or that senator or that governor you might find it so hard to love is a human being with a soul who will one day have to answer to God, and he or she needs your prayer. It's easy to impersonalize somebody. They just become a public figure, so they're not a person anymore. Uh, I was listening to an interview this week. I forgot who it was with now. Oh, it was John Krasinski from The Office, and if you know, he's, he's Jim from the office. And he said that one day he was just out and about talking to some people and a woman just walked up and stuck her hand in his mouth. And he said he thought that she thought she could get away with it because he was just a thing to her because he was a celebrity. And sometimes you can depersonalize, not only is that really bizarre, but you can depersonalize people. You can think, ah, oh, this is not a real person. This is just a, a thing. This is just somebody I see on television. And we can forget this is a person. Uh, it's important that if we have God's heart toward people, then we should never say, I won't pray for that person. We shouldn't say that. 
But the question is, though, why should we pray indiscriminately for the world? Well, Paul actually is, is laying that out for us here this morning. And so let me show you under two headings this morning what Paul is doing. First, he says, God desires salvation. Second, he says, God desires all people. We need to define both of those things very carefully, this idea of desire, this idea of all and this idea of salvation. So we need to understand clearly what we're actually talking about here. He's saying if you get in line with these two expressed desires of God, Paul is telling Timothy, you won't struggle to pray for the world, and you especially won't struggle to pray for the unbelieving world. So let's see that this morning. First, we see that, that God desires salvation. Uh, notice how in, in verse 3, Paul says this. When he says this, he's referring to praying for these people, praying for these people from all walks of life. And he says, this thing, praying for these people is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. See, see at rock bottom, this is really Paul's argument for why we should pray even for people we don't like or even people that we might be tempted to think of as our enemies. Uh, everything else here is just reinforcing this argument. You know, one of the things, if you ever read a good book, they will say, usually in the introduction, my whole book is arguing this, and I'm going to spend every chapter showing you why this is true. Just started reading Carl Truman's new book, and that's what he does in the first chapter. Very plainly says, this is what my whole book is about. And the remaining 500 pages is me making the case that this is true. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's making his thesis statement right here. Praying for all people is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God. And then he tells us why. That's what, all that we're seeing here this morning. And so he says, this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's focus on this word here, saved. This is so fundamental, I, I, I almost moved past it. I almost moved past it. You know, as a, as a preacher, sometimes you get self-conscious. You say, no, I've said these things before. Everybody here believes this. I'm not going to say this again. And then you remember that there are so many people out there who don't understand this idea that if we don't say these things, even the most basic things, eventually one day those things are going to be assumed but not taught. And eventually they won't even be assumed and they'll be lost. And so we have to keep, whenever we see these things, we have to, to lean in on them. And so, because oftentimes people want to talk about the all, right? Everybody wants to go, what about the all people? I want to talk about that. Uh, they want to know if Paul is teaching this or that. Is Paul teaching universalism? Is everybody going to heaven? And they miss the more fundamental thing that so many churches today do neglect. Uh, you may not be aware of this, especially if you've gone to a church where these things are taught, but it is very common in churches in the Western world to not even talk about salvation, not even acknowledge, uh, not even acknowledge the subject at all. Uh, these churches, they have their different reasons, of course, for some churches. They would say they believe in salvation, they believe uh, in the need for people to be saved, but they think the message is almost cliche now. They think it's a message for baby Christians. So maybe something that maybe it's something that gets you in the door, something that you learn at the very, very, very beginning so that you have a reason to raise your hand. But then you want to quickly move on because you're going to be spiritually stunted if you just keep focusing on salvation and don't, don't move on to the bigger stuff like social transformation, right? And so some think of this as this fundamentalist impulse. It's immature to talk about salvation. 
Then you have other churches where church leaders may not even really believe in a doctrine of sin and, and preaching about salvation becomes very difficult, right? If you want to talk about salvation, you have to be saved from something. Saved from what? Saved, saved why? Saved how? And, and then because they've become convinced of certain errors, the idea of God desiring for anyone to be saved becomes either a formality or, or a puzzle box that they don't care to open. And so salvation isn't preached and it gets neglected. Because these things happen in our land, because this is the state of Christianity today, we shouldn't move too quickly past this, this, this doctrine of what Paul talks about here, salvation. Because salvation implies being saved from something. It, it implies that there is something wrong with you and there is something wrong with me and there is something wrong with these people Paul says we're supposed to be praying for. So as we, as we move further into this, this passage, we're going to see that the, the solution that God provides, but all of that solution is built upon a, a prerequisite reality. We need God to do something. We need God to act. We need God to step in and rescue us and do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. We must be saved. Someone else must act. Someone else must do the saving, and we must be the passive one. We're the one that gets saved. I might give you one verse from another of Paul's writings that shows us this need in Romans 3, 2. We have one of the first verses I was taught when I was a little kid. I, I went to the Iwana Club at the Baptist Church, and we memorized the King James Version of all tons of verses. And the verse that I think I remember learning first, I think it's the first one I remember, is Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is so much packed into just those 12 words. Uh, packed into these words is this idea of sin, right? Sin is, is anything that falls short of God's standard. If you've ever felt guilty... If you've ever done wrong, if you've ever had a sense that there is something wrong with you, then you know experientially what it is to sin. Well, Jesus never had that experience. Jesus didn't know what it felt like to sin. Uh, Adam and Eve never had that feeling until after they, they disobeyed. You and I have that feeling every day. At least we should if our consciences aren't seared, right? We, we know what it's like to, to disobey God, and we know what the consequences of, of sin are like. But, but Paul says here, not just that some have sinned. He doesn't just say that those really bad people over there have sinned, that guy Nero who thinks that he's God has sinned. Uh, he doesn't just say that the Romans have sinned. He doesn't just say that the, the Jews have sinned. He says, all have sinned. And so what he intends with these words is to condemn the entire human race. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We've not reflected the goodness of God. We've not reflected the holiness of God in our own lives. We have fallen short. There's no indication here that he's limiting the all. It, it appears he is saying every single person who is born on this earth has sinned. Everyone who is a descendant of Adam has sinned. In fact, that's what he says in Romans 5. He says, anyone who's in Adam is a sinner, and that's, that's all of us. I mean, everyone in here has a belly button, I think. How, do, how does God intend to rescue people from that kind of situation, a situation where we've all sinned and we, we all stand condemned? 
how does he rescue someone from that kind of situation? How does he do it? Well, Paul uses this metaphor here in this passage, and the, the metaphor he uses is of ransom. In the world of Jesus' time, a ransom was a price you paid to set someone free. Today, we think of it as getting a kidnapper uh, set free, right? But in, in Jesus' time, it would have been more in the context of slavery. So in a Roman context, if someone's a slave, they can have a price paid and they can be set free. The word they use for that is ransom. And Paul brings glory to Jesus by saying that salvation happens by means of this mediator who paid the price of those who needed to be set free. So he pays the price that another person owes. It's him, it's him doing something for us that we're unable to do, right? The person who gets ransomed doesn't have the money to ransom himself. Someone comes in and pays the price for him. It's this idea of a third party coming in and standing between these other two parties and, and mediating and arguing on behalf of the one. If you remember, this happened in Israel, right? Moses, Moses did this in, in the life of Israel. The people were too afraid to approach the mountain. They're too afraid of the lightning and the fire and the smoke. And they say, Moses, you go talk to God. And so Moses goes and he speaks to God and then he speaks to the people. He stands in between as a mediator between these parties and he was used to, to unify and hold them together. God has a relationship with these people through whom? The mediator. But here's what, what's amazing. Each of us needs a mediator because we have all sinned. We talked about this just a moment ago. None of us is in good standing with God on our own. Uh, our most desperate and urgent need is for someone to stand between us and the Lord and make sure that our relationship is, is right with him. Because on our own, things are not right. Things are not right. Um, Paul, um, Paul's saying Jesus is a mediator. But who is he a mediator between? He's a mediator between two parties. One is God and one is man. I remember one of the most, it's basic but it's so basic that I never thought a lot about it before. But R.C. Sproul uh, made this, this comment where he said, he said, we talk about being saved. The question is, we are saved, but we are saved from whom? And the point that Sproul made was that Jesus, as the Son of God, is, is coming to save us from God. He is here to save us from the wrath of God. Because we don't need to be saved from ourselves. We don't need to be saved from the devil. We need to be saved from God. Because God is the one who has issues with us. Because our sin has put enmity between us and him. That's why Romans 5.9 says, Much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Right? It isn't man's wrath that's the problem. It's not the devil's wrath that's the problem. It's God's wrath that we have to be saved from. And because of that, we need a mediator. We need a ransom. We need someone to pay the price and make things right so that we can, can look God full in the face one day and not be destroyed. 1 John 3, 2 says that will happen someday. He says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And there's only one way that happens. That happens by means of a mediator who gave himself as a ransom for people from all tribes and tongues and nations. Going back to what I said a moment ago, this is, this is a, 
this is why discussion of salvation is not a cliche. It is not a fundamentalist message. It is not a message for babies. It is not a message for immature Christians. Salvation is actually the opposite of a cliche. It is the opposite of baby food. We are actually talking about the deep things of God here. It is actually the deepest things of God. We can, we can dive into this and not find the bottom of the pool. This is, this is mature food for the Christian. And, and we should be very careful not to talk about it as if this is baby talk, as if this is baby Christianity. And we should be resolved that the need for salvation is why God wants us to pray for unbelievers Because unbelievers need an unbelievable thing. They need to be saved, which is not a small thing. And that's the first reason why Paul says we should pray, because God desires salvation. Now, second, Paul says something that undergirds his argument for why not only we should pray, because these people need prayer, but he's making an argument for why we should pray indiscriminately, for people from all walks of life and and all nations. Why should I pray for people if I don't know that they're going to be saved? Why should I pray for people that I don't know are saved? Why should I do that? Why should I pray for people whose salvation is ambiguous? Well, the reason has to do with the universality. There's a big word. It's universal, his desire for people to be saved. And so the, the second reason, and I'll talk about what I mean by that term, universal. The second reason he says we should pray for all kinds of people is because Paul speaks of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, again, your reflex might be, ah, let's talk about all. False. First, we want to talk about desires because that's the thing God's doing here that the passage is talking about. Uh, When he uses the word desire, I think many of us uh, uh, may be drawn to it, but the question is, what does it mean for God to desire anything? What what does it mean for God to desire something? Well, uh, in the Bible, there are two senses in which we talk about God willing something or desiring something. Uh, We talk about him commanding, and we talk about him decreeing. Um, And these are two different things, because one of them always happens, and one of them doesn't always happen. One of these things happen, one of them doesn't always happen. Um, One of the ways we talk about God's desire is his will of decree. This is when God decides that something should happen, and it does happen. Uh, Another word for this is his sovereignty. This is God's authority to do as he pleases. We see the absolute power of God over all things in the Bible. Um, And because they're so crucial, I want to convince you from the Bible that this is not just my own idea, that God always decrees and always gets what he decrees. I want you to see it from Scripture. So I'm going to give you three verses. The first one is Psalm 115.3. It's a really simple verse. It says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All right. Uh, he doesn't do some of what he pleases, but he does all that he pleases. So the whole of what he pleases is what he does. So here the psalmist is saying that God has a desire that in a sense he always sees accomplished. So whatever his will of decree is, he always gets it and it's never thwarted. 
he does it always. He does all that he pleases. So that doesn't just refer to world events. That doesn't just refer to tornadoes. That doesn't just uh, refer to rising waters. It even extends to salvation. Um, think about Romans 9.18. There's a whole argument behind this verse that leads us up to this one sort of, sort of money verse here. But Paul is, is giving an argument for God's freedom in salvation. Why is it that some people find salvation and some do not? And he says this, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. So, he's, so if he wills someone to receive mercy in the sense of this decree, then they will receive mercy. Um, he's making an argument that if God's will of decree extends to someone's salvation, then they will be saved by putting their faith in Christ. So that's with regards. So you've got all events, you've got salvation, and then you have a passage like Ephesians 1.11 that brings all these things together. Because in Ephesians 1.11, it says uh, that believers in Christ have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To be predestined is to be decided before. That's just the, what the language of it means. That's Paul's actual word that he uses. But he says they're predestined according to the purpose of him who what? Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Here you have that language again from the Psalms. He does all that he pleases. Paul is bringing together God's sovereignty over the universe and his sovereignty in salvation. It's almost like he's marrying these ideas from Psalm 115 and Romans, right, and Romans 9, right? Because God works everything according to his will, even our salvation is in his hands. In all those passages, what do we see? We see it's being taught that not only does God always do what he pleases, but he always saves whomever he pleases because he is free to do so and not because he owes it to anybody. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about God's will of decree. He does whatever he wants. And when we talk about God's will of decree, we're talking about something that always happens the way he wants it to happen. But then on the other hand, there's another reality that we also know, which is that there is something we call God's will of command. This is the desire or the will of God that doesn't necessarily always happen. Things that happen differently than God says. Uh, it is an expression of God's will, which his creatures oftentimes will disobey. You know, it's like when God says, you shall not murder. And then we've had a very high murder rate in this city last year. Well, what gives? I thought that God always accomplishes his will. And yet we also know that he says, thou shalt not murder. How do you square these things? And the, this is where we start to realize and understand that, yes, even though all things happen according to God's will, at the same time, there is a type of will of God that is not accomplished. And that is his will of command. This is his will that gets disobeyed. And it gets disobeyed all the time. Uh, because, because it's his law, and we're sinners, and we don't do it. You see this in the garden, of course. He tells Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of this tree. Uh, he shows his will of command. He tells them what they should do and should not do, and then they do it anyway. So his, 
His will of command is broken and it's violated in the garden and it gets violated with, with Cain and his brother. It, his law is broken all the time. Human history is just a series of dominoes of the command of God being ignored and disobeyed constantly. It doesn't just happen around us. It happens in our own hearts. It happened in our own hearts this morning, probably driving here. So when Paul says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, which desire is he talking about? Is he talking about God's, God's will of command or is he talking about God's will of decree? By the way, stay with me here. I know there are nerds among you who are just like hanging on every word right now. And then there are some of you who are like, oh no, this is the worst moment of my life. Um, stay with me. Paul could mean his will of command here, right? He could mean that God desires all people to be saved in the same way he desires that people don't murder and it just doesn't happen, right? Um, it, it, it would certainly account for the fact that not everyone is actually saved, right? We, we also know that he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's his will of command, that people repent. And yet we know that not everyone does repent. So this is not an impossible option that he's talking about God's will of command. He tells us to repent and we don't. Maybe he means that God's will of command is that everybody repent and they just don't. Um, that's certainly one option. But what about the first sense? What about the will of decree? Does, this, does that make better sense out of this reading? Does God decree that all people be saved? Is that the kind of desiring that Paul is talking about? Now, here comes the problem with this view. If Paul means that this is God's will of decree, that every single human being be saved, if, if he means all without exception, then all people would be saved. You would be talking about universalism. You would be talking about Hitler being in heaven uh, and your grandmother, right? Everybody goes, if that's what he means. If he means all human beings without exception and that God decrees that all human beings without exception be saved, then they would be saved and they would all be there. Even Hitler, right? Um, we know that he gives mercy to all that, that he pleases. We, we know that he does all that he pleases. We know that he gives mercy to all that he pleases. And we know that uh, he works all things according to his will. And yet we also know that everyone will not be saved, right? We do know there will be people in hell. The Bible testifies that hell is a real place. We, the Bible testifies that it is populated with people who have broken God's will of command, so I think at the very least, we can eliminate that idea. We can eliminate the idea that he's saying that God decrees all people who have ever lived without exception, uh, we can eliminate that, that that is not what he's saying here. So does that mean that we're only left to understand this passage as saying that God's will of command is what Paul's talking about? He just, he just wishes everyone would be saved and they just aren't. Well, not necessarily. I'm going to give you a third option. <laughs> it could be. It could be. If someone came to me, if God meets me in heaven and says, actually, I was talking about my will of command there, it won't upset me. But he, he commands all people to repent. He accepts all people to be baptized. I mean, it really wouldn't upset me. I, I want him to know that. But, 
But since it, since it is his will of command, it might be disobeyed. I think understanding that phrase may not be wrong. But, but remember something. This is a passage about God's purpose uh, and why we should pray for all people. And, and I think this understanding doesn't make the argument Paul is trying to make. Because his argument is not that God has commanded everybody to repent, therefore we should too. His argument is that God's purpose is to actually save people from all over the world and that we should be praying for people from all over the world. Remember, he wants us to pray indiscriminately for people. Let me see if I can bring out the difference. The, the, the key word in this passage isn't the word desire. I think the real key to understanding Paul, they're all important, but the key here is the word all. Because we read this passage... And I think we naturally go too big in our reading. We go, we go big like Paul does in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. right? We go universal in, in the sense that the word sometimes gets used. There Paul is saying, we've all sinned, all of us without exception. And so when Paul says God desires all people to be saved, we think of all in the same way. One of the things we have to learn in our Bible reading is let the context determine the meaning of a word. In Romans 3, Paul's speaking of a condition every human being has because they are all descendants of Adam. And so it makes sense for us to understand all to refer to everyone who's ever been born of Adam. The context demanded that we think of all as encompassing every person without exception. In the case of this passage today, what does Paul mean by all? In the context... Uh, the context helps us just like it does in Romans. We're going to see the, we'll look a little wider and, and you'll see right after Paul says that God desires all to be saved. And after he says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, he makes this statement in verse seven. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles. See what he's saying? He's like, this is why I exist to take this gospel wider than just your little world. Right? Because they've got their horizons focused in on, on the Jewish people. He's, he's supposed to minister to Gentiles too. And, and this is a people who are very Jewish focused. They're being, being tempted to follow after um, Jewish uh, ideas. They're tempted to bring their little world sort of into the circle of Judaism and say, this is what God is really up to. And Paul says, but my whole mission is to go to all of those people. Please don't just pray for the Jewish people. Right? He's talking to a young man whose horizon is in danger of being too small. He is, he is perhaps tempted not to pray for some people. He's surrounded by false teachers who want to stay focused on, on the Jewish people and the ceremonial laws of Judaism. The, these, these teachers want to close the circle of salvation. They, they want to focus on limited, small groups. So they count out people like kings and those in authority, especially these Gentiles. And Paul says, I was appointed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Think bigger. God desires people from all tribes and tongues and nations to know the Savior. He has people out there who are wider than just this little group. Think bigger, Timothy. Pray wider, not narrower. Paul isn't saying that God desires all to be saved without exception. We've ruled that out. He has a people that he has set his eyes and he has set his heart on and we don't know who they are. He isn't, he isn't saying without exception. He's saying all without distinction. People from many groups, 
none getting preferential treatment, right? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you will never be excluded from the kingdom because of your race or people or language or background, right? He chooses to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So it's all without distinction, not all without exception. Again, this helps us to explain why hell is populated at all. There's almost this sense in which Paul is pushing back against that inner resistance, that inner resistance to pray for the salvation of some people. What is he doing? How does he answer that, that, that instinct? He answers by saying, how dare you? Your God calls people from all sorts of places and people and nations. How dare you, mere human, shut the door in God's face as though you get to decide who is worthy and who is, is not worthy of being lifted before the creator. You don't know who God is, uh, is uh, who God's people are and who God's people aren't. You don't get to presume. You don't get to decide. This is all in the hands of the sovereign God. It is, it is in his purpose even to save kings. You know, it appears from history that there were Christians who ended up even sitting on the throne of the empire. So, so don't tell God by your refusal to pray that you know who he will save and who he won't save. He has people from all over the world, from all sorts of walks of life. So don't dare to say, I know who I should pray for. I know who I shouldn't pray for. I know who is worthy and who isn't worthy of being lifted before God. May we never be so presumptuous. We don't have access to God's eternal counsels. Those are hidden with him. Those are the secret things that belong to our God. And so what do we do in response? We pray knowing that God has people all over the world. Instead, Paul says, we have a duty to make sure that our life and prayers are in line with God's purpose, which includes so many people from so many backgrounds and so many nations that we simply have no way of knowing who we should and shouldn't pray for. See, God knows who his people are. He knows who he has chosen in his sovereignty to save, as Romans 9 and Ephesians 1.11 hinted at. He knows, but we don't. We don't. We can't look out at a crowd and see all of the shirts that are the right color and say, ah, that's how he does it. Pray for all the blue shirts or the green shirts. You know, we don't do that. And so what do we do? We pray indiscriminately because God's desire to save people from all over the world is true. And he, and he plans. This is what's remarkable. This is the thing that, that might get past us in this passage. Our prayers, he is so kind that he has decided to use our prayers in accomplishing that purpose. So, so when we pray, what is he doing? He's using us. He's using us as a means to accomplish tremendous things. What an incredible privilege. Think wider, not narrower. Think bigger, not smaller. It's almost like Jesus is saying to Timothy what he says in John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You know, I just think even in this moment right now, there are children being born all over the world. And you just imagine, like, in the heart and mind of God, he knows which of these children are his. But they have to hear the gospel. <laughs> and they need your prayers. And we need to keep praying for them because there are new children being born every day. There are people all over this world. 
Do you look at the world out there and you think, God has sheep out there who need my prayers. They need to hear the gospel. They need to have the knowledge of God that Paul talks about. Do you have that impulse? impulse? Because there's that impulse here. It's actually an impulse toward world missions. It's an impulse toward global prayers. We should be participating in both, says Paul. To be participating in global prayers is to be participating in global missions. Right? He wants to convince us of that. So what's the answer to our prayerlessness? It's to get at the heart and convince us that we ought to also love all the sheep out there who need to be brought by the power of God into the flock by faith in Jesus. That's our call. Let's pray. Father, you have a real love for the people of this world. We remember that moment where Jesus looked at the masses of people in Galilee and and your word tells us that he loved them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Would you give us a love for the people of this world so that we would pray for them, so that we would yearn for them to know you, to know the good shepherd? Would you plant that love and that desire within us so that we would never hold back prayers, but that we would be ever willing to bring them before your throne. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.